thank you for listening to Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from From Fuck to Microorganism Why Do Words Sound the Way They Do? by Shiri Lev Ari. It was first broadcast live on the 23rd of March 2023. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and thank you for your support. Hi everyone, um, um, thank you for the introduction. I'm very excited to be here and especially on such a special occasion of the 100th show. Let me just say that unfortunately the exposure to German should make you now trust more German speakers. So if you're not going to trust anything I say, I'm going to blame you that because you haven't had exposure to Hebrew speakers yet. But anyway, what I'm going to talk to you about, as you can guess from the title that says from fact to microorganism, why do words sound the way they do? It's, of course, why do words sound the way they do? So, ooh, just a second. Hmm. I hope my computer, yeah, okay, will allow me to show the slides. So I think a good way to start, if we're going to talk about the sounds of different words, is understanding what is even language. And what I'm showing you here is really um, a classic description of what are the defining features of language. That is, what does a communication system needs to have in order for it to be called a language? Uh, like I said, this is classic. It's more than 50 years ago. Um, I should say, um, so this is by Hockett. Hockett changed his version of what are the defining features um, of language over time. And nowadays, not all of them are still agreed on, but just let me give you some idea so you understand uh, what we talk about when we talk about language. So. Um, for example, one of the features that makes language special is that in language you can talk about things that are not around. So not just about the here and now, but you can talk about what you did yesterday, what you're going to do tomorrow, counterfactuals that will never happen. Um, related to that, language is productive. That means that many of the sentences you're going to hear today are sentences you've never heard in your life beforehand, yet you'll still be able to understand them. And every time you speak, you're able to make completely new sentences that you've never heard before. So these are uh, characteristics of language that are not shared with other communication systems. But the one characteristic that I really want to focus on today is the fact that language are considered arbitrary. So the idea of arbitrary is that there's no relationship between the sound of a word and the meaning of a word. And when Hockett first introduced this idea that this is something that defines language, he tended to give an example of a whale and a microorganism. And the argument was a whale is such a huge entity, yet the name is actually only one syllable, whale, so very short. In contrast, microorganism, such a tiny, tiny entity, but such a long name. So clearly the length of the name doesn't actually reflect anything about the meaning or the size, at least, of the meaning. And keep that example in mind. We're going to get back to it later on. But just so you understand better what it means, uh, that there is arbitrariness in language. So usually when people talk about the fact that the form of the word is arbitrary, they don't just talk about um, the length of the words, but mainly about the sounds of the words. So, for example, if I look at words such as um, window or see, there's nothing about the sound in the word window that expresses the meaning of window. And really, if you look at the word window in other languages, they contain completely different sounds. So I'm just using here languages that I speak. So window in English is actually finetly in French, salon in Hebrew, shubak in Arabic. As you can see, they don't share any sounds across them. 
Similarly, C in English is Mer in French, Yam in Hebrew, Bacher in Arabic. So again, very different sounds accord, um, across the languages. And you might think, okay, I can see how the sounds of the words are not really related to the meaning, but how can they be? What does it mean even for the sound of a word to be related to its meaning? Well, in order to show you that, I want, I'm going to basically do with you an experiment that was originally done about a hundred years ago. So you see right now on your screen two shapes. Um, I'm telling you that one of them is called Booba and one of them is called Kiki. And usually when I have an audience, I ask people to say which one is which, but I want you to try to guess at home which one is Booba and which one is Kiki. And I'm going to give you just a couple of seconds to think about it. And assuming that you behave like basically almost any person who gets this question, you probably think that the spiky one is Kiki and the more cloudy, blobby one here is um, Booba. Now, if this is what we thought, then you probably thought the same as everyone else right now in the audience who's answering the same question. And more than that, this has been shown in many, many studies, and this is what almost all um, English speakers do. But it's not just the responses that English speakers give. This is also the response that speakers of very different languages give, whether the languages are Western or not, industrialized or not. Um, you can go even to... Um, the Himba tribe in Namibia, uh, which are hunter-gatherers with very little contact with um, other communities, and still, they answer the same way. Um, adults answer the same way. Children answer the same way. So it really seems something universal, that something about Kiki sounds spiky, and something about Booba sounds more cloudy, blobby, like here. And um, this idea that there's something about the sounds that actually reflects the meaning is what is called sound symbolism. So when the relationship between sound and meaning is not arbitrary. So in contrast to what we said was conceived as a defining feature of language. And just to give you a few other examples other than Booba and Kiki, um, if you show people a large object and a small object, such as, um, for example, a large table and a small table, and you tell them one of them is called meal, one of them is called mal, which is which, people tend to choose the mil for the small one and the mal for the large one. And in general, you can also change the objects, but the idea is that the sound e sounds smaller than the sounds a. And just because, okay, you might think, okay, booba, kiki, mil, and mal, fine, but these are made up words, this is not real words in language, then people have looked and found here and there words in language that are sound symbolic. So for example, if you look at the words for nose across the world's languages, you'll find that words for nose are much more likely to have the sound n in them than would you'd expect by chance. Now, why might that be? Well, the idea is that uh, whereas most sounds um, really come out of um, really through our throat and our um, mouth cavity, nasal sounds, so sounds like n, actually are also produced via the nose. So it could be that because the sound n is produced via the nose, it's much more, when people try to coin words for nose, they're much more likely to choose such a sound. And here I basically also got to the idea of why might there be sometimes relationship or association between sounds and meanings? So sometimes the argument is that uh, really that the sound and the mean, like the sound of the word and the meaning share some properties. So for example, like I said, nose, um, the sound n is actually produced via the nose. 
people say that um, some of these associations can just be learned from our physical environment. So beforehand, I gave you the example of E for um, small objects and R for larger objects. Well, if you think about different objects in the world and how what sounds they make when they move, then think about, for example, what it would sound if all these really tiny pebbles fell compared to these really large rocks. So the frequency in the sounds of these really tiny pebbles are going to be much higher than the frequencies when these really large rocks um, move around. And the idea is that similarly, if you look at E and R, E really has high frequencies, as in this case, and R has much lower frequencies, as in the case of the rocks. So the idea is that, again, people learn something from the physical environment that E goes with small things and low frequencies go with um, large things. And then they basically, um, yeah, this generalizes to different words. I should say there are other explanations for sound symbolism, but this can give you an idea of how they're learned. And as you can see, all these um, associations are going to be something that people learn regardless of the culture, regardless of their language, because this is just about um, shared physical environment that is going to be true everywhere in the world and also our physiology. So really the idea is that this is something that is going to be shared, this association across everyone in the world. Okay, so I explained to you what sound symbolism would be like, but... I didn't really give you a lot of real examples. I showed you nose, and um, I say that also the sound E for small. But the question is, can we find more sound symbolism in a language and just a word here or there? And what I'm going to show you right now is a case where we can, and specifically when we look at swear words. Okay. So first of all, how do you even study whether swear words are sound symbolic? What do you do? Well, we actually went about studying it in several different stages. So the first thing we did is we said, okay, let's look at all the swear words in multiple different languages and let's look at which sounds they have. And specifically, we collected swear words from quite different languages. So Hebrew, Hindi, Hungarian, Korean, Russian. So they're really um, spoken in very different parts of the world and they're not related to each other. And then after we collected all these swear words from these languages, what we did is we looked at their sounds and compared them to the sounds in other words in the language. And basically what we found is that we couldn't find sounds that were particularly common in swear words, but what we found is that there are sounds that are really avoided in swear words. And specifically, there are sounds that are called approximants, and these are sounds that are very similar to le, le, y, and r in English. And these sounds, like I said, are really avoided. So they're underrepresented in swear words. Now I'm sure that right now, each of you is trying to think about swear words that actually have these words and sorry, these sounds, and you can probably find a few. And the argument is not that you never ever find swear words that have these sounds, but that you find far fewer of these sounds in swear words compared to how many you'd expect to find considering how frequent these sounds are in the language. So they appear much less in swear words compared to the rest of the language. Okay, so this was the first step and it looked like, okay, there is sound symbolism in swear words. If we look across the world's languages, we really find that some sounds are avoided in swear words. But we wanted to go beyond that and get more evidence to see, is this really the case? Do we just find by chance that for some reason they're missing or can we actually find evidence that people find them to not sound very sweary? 
So what we did then is we did an experiment that we call it a swear dar experiment. And the reason we call it swear dar is because we told participants that we're testing how good they are at telling whether a word is a swear word or not. So basically what we told our participants that they're going to hear pairs of words in foreign languages. And in each pair, one of the words is a swear word and one is not. And their task is basically to be able to guess which of the two words is a swear word. So participants heard, for example, the following pair. Laum. Laum. Or they heard the following pair. Doccia. Doglia. So as you can see in both cases, the two words in the pair are very similar to each other and only differ in one sound. So for example, there was sound and laum. So they only differ in having c versus le in the beginning. In the second pair, again, Doya and docha, they're very similar, but one has ye and one has ch. Now, if you go back and remember which sounds I told you are really avoided in swear words, then you probably notice that, okay, le in laum is a sound that shouldn't be, that it generally doesn't appear a lot in swear words. And ye in doya, again, is a sound that people usually don't put in swear words. So if we are right that certain sounds, specifically the approximant le, le, ye, and ru, really don't sound very sweary. When we ask people, which word is the swear word? Was it Zaum. or Laum. They should think, okay, Laum doesn't sound sweary, so I'm going to go with the other one. And basically, that's what we found. We found that participants consistently chose the word that is not, um, that doesn't have approximants to be the swear words. And I would just um, also want to say that our participants were not just native English speakers, we also wanted to see that these intuitions are really true for speakers of multiple different languages. So we had six different groups of participants. We had Arabic speakers, we had Finnish speakers, we had Spanish speakers, so really, again, speakers of many different languages. Laum, laum, yes. Yeah, and as I said beforehand, we did find that participants um, consistently didn't choose the words. And just so um, you understand how to read this figure, what you see over here is how often participants chose the words with approximants, so words like laum or doya. And if participants had been a chance, they should have always responded around this line of chance, sometimes a little above it, sometimes a little below it. But as you can see over here, each and every one of our participant group was always below the line because they were always less likely to choose the words like laum or doya compared to the other words. And I should say, I gave you just Tsaum and Laum and Doya and Docha, but we had actually multiple pairs that were also modeled afterwards for multiple languages. Okay, so now we could see that swear words in the real world tend to not have the approximate sounds. We can also see that when people hear words and need to guess, is it a swear word or not? They tend to think that words that have these sounds are not the swear word. So our next question was, okay, if those sounds really sound so non-sweary, can we actually make a swear word non-offensive by introducing the sounds into it? So that was our next study. So we looked at something that um, is officially called minced oaths. You can also think about it as a sanitized swear word. And this is the idea that instead of saying, for example, damn, you say darn. Or instead of saying fucking, you might say flipping, frigging, and multiple other words like that. So the idea is that Whereas you might not want to say a word like fucking in a meeting, if you say flipping, it's okay to even say it in more context or different contexts where you usually wouldn't swear. So these are 
politer versions of the swear words. And like I said, what we wanted to see is whether people actually add those sounds to the approximate sounds into the swear words in order to make them um, polite. So what we did is we looked at all the different minced oaths in English, and we basically compared the sounds in the minced oath, so like flipping and darn, to the original version of the swear word. And we just wanted to see which sounds are different. And um, predictably, we really found that, um, as you can see in these examples, for example, like flipping and frigging, one way to make a swear word less offensive is by introducing these non-offensive sounds like le and r and w and y. Okay, so what have we seen so far? We've seen that the sound of swear words are not arbitrary because we've seen that, first of all, if you look at words across the um, swear words across the words languages, um, certain sounds, specifically approximants, are avoided. We can see that when um, you play participants' words that have those sounds, they think that they don't sound like swear words. And we can see that when um, speakers, at least English speakers, try to make swear words less wary or less offensive, they add those sounds into the words. Okay. Now, all of this also actually shows that in beyond swear words, that if we actually look at language, even though we said that one of the defining features of language is arbitrariness, we can actually see that um, not everything in language is arbitrary, that the sounds are not always arbitrary, and we can find cases, for example, the swear words, where really um, the sound of the words does play a role, and it's not just random. Okay. So after I convinced you, hopefully, that there is sound symbolism in language, the next question that I asked is, well, are all languages equally sound symbolic, or are there languages that are more sound symbolic than others? And you might think that's a weird question to ask. Why would languages be different? Or which languages would be more or less unsymbolic? Well, what prompted me really to ask this question is the fact that um, different languages are spoken by very different communities. So if you think, for example, about English, English is spoken by um, hundreds of millions of speakers. Um, so it's a very large community that is also very diverse. In contrast, there are languages that are only spoken by a few hundred or thousand speakers. So and the size of the community can really influence how easy or hard it is to communicate. So think, for example, about a very large community compared to a small one. In a large community, it's going to take a long time for information to travel until it reaches everyone. So, for example, if you just speak a language that is just spoken by in your village and maybe the neighboring village, if you... Um, coin a new word, um, it's not going to take that long until everyone in the village and in the neighboring village is going to hear it. But um, if you're going to coin a word in English right now, it's going to be quite unlikely, or at least will take a really long time until someone in Canada and New Zealand and South Africa all heard uh, your newly coined word. So like I said, it takes much longer for information to spread and it might never manage to spread to everyone. Another problem with large communities is that every person speaks slightly differently. So each and every one of us really pronounces words slightly differently. Um, each and every one of us prefers using slightly different words, even has slightly different, prefers slightly different grammatical structure. And the more people there are, the more variations to the languages there are. And again, the more variation there is, that's gonna make it hard to communicate with someone. And that's even more true considering the fact that in large communities, 
we all the time also need to talk to strangers. So for example, let's say that you need um, some service, you might need to make a call to someone that you've never talked beforehand. Um, if you go and buy in a store or if you um, take public transport and you need to talk to people, you often find yourself talking to people that are strangers that you never met beforehand, yet you still need to understand each other. In very small communities, you might know the entire community and never have to talk to someone that you never talked to beforehand. So all these things make communication in larger communities much, much harder. But of course, um, I'll just say that English should be a language that is really hard to communicate because of the size of the community, but we still manage to communicate. You understand what I'm saying right now, and hopefully I'll understand your questions later. So obviously, even large communities manage to communicate. So how do they do that? Well, the argument and just growing research on that really shows that the way that what large communities do is basically they create languages that are easier. So what does it mean to be easier? For example, one example is that languages that have large communities have simpler grammar. So grammar that is easier to learn and easier to process when you use. And the idea is that because the languages are easier, it facilitates communication and you basically help them overcome the difficulty of communicating in larger communities. Well, small communities don't need to worry about it because communication is easier to begin with. Now, how does that relate to sound symbolism, which is the topic of today? Well, the argument is that sound symbolism is actually something that really facilitates communication. So first of all, if you need to learn a new word, whether you're a child or an adult, People learn sound symbolic words more quickly than they do non-symbolic sound, um, sound, non-sound symbolic words. Um, another thing is, imagine that you communicate with someone and they use a word that you've never heard beforehand. If it sounds symbolic, it's going to be easier for you to guess what it means compared to if it's not sound symbolic within the context. So all these things really facilitate communication. So. If we're saying that larger communities, what they do is create simpler languages that are easier to learn and easier to use. And if we say that sound symbolism is something that makes a language easier to learn and easier to use, the question is, does that mean that larger communities are gonna create more sound symbolic languages? Like I said, this is the question that uh, we tested. And the way to test it was to say, okay, Let's look at the word big and small in very small languages and very large languages. So first of all, why big and small? Well, like I said beforehand, we actually know about some sound symbolic associations that people have between sounds and size, such as, for example, that E is really associated with small size compared to R, which is associated with large um, size. So we said, let's look just at big and small. And like I said, we uh, selected 20 widely spoken languages. So you can see that each and every one of these languages is spoken by tens of millions of speakers. And you can see that they also come from all areas of the world. So we have Mandarin and Arabic and Turkish and Zulu. So really spoken in different continents. Um, they're languages that are not related to one another. And you can also see that we particularly try to avoid very common European languages such as English, French, Spanish, to really not choose languages that our participants are likely to know. Like I said, we took the word big and small from these 20 languages, but we also took the word big and small from 20 much less common languages. So as you can see, 
all these languages are really spoken with just a few hundreds or thousands of speakers. And again, they're spoken in different parts of the world. And you might be surprised that you've never heard of these languages. But um, this might be a good point to say that there are actually 7,000 uh, languages in the world. So actually, um, the majority of you are probably don't, I've never heard of um, more than half of a percent or 1% of the languages in the world. Um, and the majority of languages in the world tend to actually be quite small, so much less familiar. So like I said, these are 20, again, languages from different parts of the world that are spoken by quite a few people, uh, much fewer um, than their large languages. And we just looked at the words big and small. And then all we asked participants to do was we basically play them the words. So these are real words in the different languages. And we just told them um, to guess whether the word means big or small. And that's it. And um, usually um, I ask at this point, I test my um, audience in how they do that. So do try to do it at home together with me and um, guess what each words mean. Okay. I assume you're ready now. So we'll go with the first word. Badak. I'll just play it a second time. Badak. Okay. Now a second word. I'll give you the responses at the end. Ndu. And again. Oops. Ndu. And the last one. Kichik. Okay, so if you are similar to my participants and my audience in general, then you might have all guessed or the majority of guessed that badak is, means large. You might have guessed that kichik means small, and you might have been less sure about ndu. And if that's the case, then um, you were right about badak, it does mean large, and you were right about kichik, it does mean small. And I should say that both these words are in languages that are really spoken by tens of millions of speakers. So Badak is in Sundanese, which is spoken in Indonesia, and Kichik is in Turkish. And in contrast, Ndu is a word that far fewer people are, people struggle with much more, um, and they tend to not be sure. And if anything, they're more likely to be wrong. So Ndu actually means large. And Ndu is actually a word in Yale, which is a language spoken in Papua New Guinea. So the question is whether the reason that participants really found badak and kichik easy and do difficult is because badak and kichik are, like I said, in languages spoken by tens of millions of speakers, whereas ndu is in a language spoken by just 5,000 people. And just so you can, and the response is probably yes, because it's true not just for kichik and badak and ndu, but it is true if I look across uh, the different words in the experiment. So in general, this was not an easy task, but participants were above chance. So they were better um, at telling which words they are than just guessing randomly, but they were better at guessing for the words with uh, languages that have tens of millions of speakers compared to only a few hundreds or thousand speakers, even though all languages were foreign to them and they've never heard them beforehand. Okay. So what have we seen? We've seen that languages spoken by larger communities are more sound symbolic than languages spoken by smaller communities. And the argument is that the reason that this is the case is because sound symbolism makes communication harder and larger communities create simpler and easier to use languages in order to really overcome the difficulty of communication. So what have we shown you so far, if you go every, um, everywhere from the beginning to now? I've shown you that there is sound symbolism in languages, um, especially in um, commonly spoken languages. But I also showed you that this is not always the case. For example, there's the well and the microorganism, right? Where clearly there's um, 
in the arbitrary relationship between the form of the words and the meaning. But is that really the case? And I should say, this is an interesting case because, um, like I said, well, the microorganism example is really from a classic text in linguistics where people really try to understand what is language. And it's been repeated multiple times and it's still repeated in papers and books that people write now. And it seems that people that um, argue that um, talk about arbitrariness in language start with this example to illustrate in what way language is arbitrary. But also people who argue that there's some symbolism in language, they start by giving this example and saying, okay, there's this example of arbitrariness, but if we ignore this, we can find elsewhere some symbolism, which is technically what I've done with you so far, right? I said here this arbitrary example, but now let me show, me, show you other cases where there is some symbolism. But what I want to try to argue now is that actually, even well in and microorganism, actually not um, arbitrary word forms. There's actually a reason that well is a short word and microorganism is a long word, and it is a sound symbolic relationship. So how can I show you that? Well, you might think, okay, let's do similarly to what I've done beforehand. Let's go look at the different worlds and languages in the world and look at what the words for well and microorganisms are there. And then look how long are the words and do we find that in general the word for wells are um, longer than the words for microorganism. Now, this is a bit problematic just because um, most languages in the world don't have a word for microorganism. It's quite a new word and very specific and technical. And even the few languages that have a word for that, usually they took it um, from English. So since the entire argument is that um, whether or not big entities, whether there's a relationship between um, the length of a word and the size of the entity that it refers to, I said, okay, let's just look at big and small, just like in the previous experiment. Um, that's gonna be easier, big and small do exist in all languages we know of. And in this time, unlike the last study, where I just looked at 40 languages, this time I collected words big and small from over 600 languages. And you can see their different locations here on the screen. So again, as you can see, they're spoken in quite different areas of the world and quite different families. And to basically what was the idea. So beforehand, um, the argument was that the fact that, well, has a really... Um, even though it's a big entity, a really short word, and microorganism, even though it's a very small entity, it has really long word, show that um, there's no relationship between the form of the word and the meaning. So if I look at all the different words um, for big and small across the world's languages, I should find that sometimes the word for big is larger than small, sometimes the word for um, small is longer than big, and it's basically just random. And in contrast, the argument is that if there is a sound symbolic relationship, then words for big should be longer than words for small. So that was the original argument that led people to say that well and microorganism are not sound symbolic. But I'm actually going to show you that it's the opposite, that there is actually, and so what I was trying to test is whether there is an association but the opposite association of what people thought, that actually across the world's languages, people tend to use longer words to express small size. So this is what I test. Like I said, I looked at the words for big and small in over 600 languages, and I just compared the length of the words. And I did find, as you can see in the examples here, that there is a systematic relationship. And across the world's languages, 
you can actually see that people use longer words to say small than they do for big. And I'm giving you here just a few examples that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Um, and you can see, again, from languages from quite different areas of the world. And actually, that's even true for English. So small has four sounds. Don't just look at the number of letters, but sounds. So small has four sounds and big only three. So even in English, we can see that uh, we express, use longer words to really say um, express small size. So what can we see from this? That the form of words is not arbitrary, even for the classic example of arbitrariness of well and microorganism. This is not an arbitrary um, example. It's actually an example of sound symbolism. And perhaps most importantly, it also shows us what we're actually quite bad at telling whether something is sound symbolic or not. So our expectations about what would be sound symbolic and how a word can express the meaning might be quite different from the actual patterns we find across the word's languages. Okay, so if we um, wrap up everything that I've shown you today, then first of all, um, I hope to convince you that even though um, language is defined by being arbitrary, so that there's no relationship between sound and meaning, we can actually see that there's quite a bit sound symbolism in language, so a relationship between form and meaning. We can also see that we can find such a relationship between form and meaning, even more so in languages spoken by large communities, but we can also see that we actually have quite poor intuitions in telling whether or not something is sound symbolic, as is the case of the well and the microorganism. And at this point, I'd like to thank you for your attention, but also just say that all these studies are not studies that I've done alone. So the Swearworth study was actually done in collaboration with Professor Ryan McKay from my university. And actually the study about big and small, that larger communities um, are more sound symbolic, was actually done with undergraduate students that you can see here, Yvette, Louise, Tam, and Dina and Hannah. So thank you again, and I'm looking forward to your questions. And welcome back, everybody. Now, we're getting ready for the Q&A. Um, I have bad news, unfortunately. The most common question of the last 100 talks that we've had here on this channel has been, do you have a pet? Can we see the pet? What is it? So for tonight, unfortunately, there is no pet that we could show off. So we apologize. We'll try on getting a pet in for the next speaker, maybe on a rental basis. We'll see. Before we do the Q&A now, um, I already mentioned it before. When we're done here, we'll be opening our virtual pub. We call it the Lockins Razor, and it is basically a large Zoom meeting that you can join. If you want information, I'll point you once again to our website, sitp.online. And there is a direct link which takes you there, which is sitp.online forward slash virtual pub, one word. So that out of the way, let's have a look at your questions. Good. Shiri, you're with me? Yes, I am. Okay, good. The first question comes from Andrew Kay. He's asking, during your research, what has been the most surprising finding which got you thinking of moving into a different direction? Yeah, so I'm going to assume it ask about, it's asking about this project rather than my research in general. Oh, um, the general. That's fine. Um, Whichever way you want to answer it. Yeah, I think I'll answer it with regards to specifically this project. So... I, like if I spoke specifically about, for example, the swear words one. So the swear word project 
Never started with the assumption that we're going to find that approximates are underrepresented in swear words. We really had no idea that we're going to find it. Actually, initially, well, what we wanted to do is to really test systematically whether there are different sound um, meaning associations. But by far, the most common assumptions that people made beforehand in the literature is that actually swear words are really rich with stops. So stops are sounds like p, t, k. So that has been mentioned and suggested multiple times, but it was always suggested by either native speakers of English or really highly related languages like German or French. And it was almost never actually studied, but just suggested. And the few people who studied it really looked again at English, German, and French, which are very highly related languages. So so one of the things we wanted to see is, are we actually going to find this pattern across um, the different languages? And we wanted to look at whether we're going to find something more systematic. So first of all, as you noticed, I didn't talk in the talk at all about Putiku, because that turned out to be just a weird English thing. Really not true for other languages, really not a universal pattern, which was a surprise to us. Because it's been suggested so many times, we thought there might be something to it, but it wasn't. And like I said, we never expected to find avoidance of approximates. That was completely a surprise when you just did like really a bottom-up analysis. So let's just look at the sounds and see what the data tells us instead of coming with our own um, assumption. As you could see, that really influenced all the studies afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Um, a lot of our questions today are especially about the swearing, um, the swear words themselves. Not so much the sounds, but the swear words. So let's see. We'll kick it off with a question from Igor. He's asking, there's an idea floating around that swearing reduces pain. Is there anything in it? And if so, is it just a swearing as an act or is there maybe something more? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say that's not what I study, but there is research that shows that when you actually swear, it does really help you um, reduce the pain. Um, There is one study that tried to look whether it matters what you swear, so whether it's the act of swearing or whether there's something about the swear words themselves. And they did find that swearing, like actually shouting swear words compared to other similar words um, does matter. And swear words do reduce pain more. Now, does that relate to what I found? I don't know. It could be that if you shout, look, it just doesn't give you the same release as some other sounds. So these sounds are avoided because they don't allow you to release frustration and emotion that much. It could be, but I don't really know. But in general, yes, you're right. Swearing and specifically swearing and not just shouting something else does reduce pain. Okay, good. Talking about uh, sounds in words, we've got a question from Nadia. She asks, are you familiar whether there is a sound meaning relationship with regards to color categories? For example, dark versus light, warm versus cool colors. Uh, As an example, she mentions that in many languages, the color red or the name for the color red involves an R in its name. Yeah, so there is actually different literature that tries to look at other types of um, sound symbolic patterns. And one of them does look at dark versus light. And he does find that there are different sounds in meaning of dark versus light. I less know about red. I mean, I can think about a lot of European languages that have the sound in red. Um, I'm not sure whether that's something that is true beyond European languages. The non-European languages I speak don't have red in the word red. But uh, but I don't. There are seven thousand languages. I don't even speak like tenth of a percent of the world's languages. So. Um, 
but in general, even though I don't know about red, yes, you are right. Um, there are people that argue that, like I said, light and dark, uh, people use different sounds for to express lightness versus darkness. Okay, so there is at least indications that there is a relationship. Okay, good. We've got a question from Grady Earthling. He asks, is there any evidence about whether older words tend to be shorter or longer than newer words? Yes, there is. So that is something that... Um, so basically, the idea is that um, the longer, the older the word, the more we start shortening it. So actually, a really good example is this is called skeptics in the pub. Pub used to be um, was it like a public house? Like you know, it used to yeah. be a really long name, and it's been shortened to pub. And that's something that very naturally happens to words. So words get shorter with time. So yes, newly coined words are more likely to be longer. So if you talk, for example, about the well and microorganisms, some people might say maybe microorganism is so long just because it's still a very new word and maybe also become shorter with time. Yeah. Isn't there an argument to be made that the short words already are all used up? Um, so that's, so it is true in that, in the sense that, um, so it's not true that they're all used up, but it is true that in general, the language is more saturated for short words. So that means that it's going to be harder for you to find combinations of, for example, words with three sounds or four sounds that are not used yet compared to 10 or 11. But there are definitely, there are definitely many, many, many different combinations of very, very like monosyllabic words that are just not words yeah. yet. So it is still possible. <laughs> okay, yeah, because there, there is a, a recurring thing in German. Uh, in German, you've got a dedicated word for when you're not hungry anymore, when you've eaten enough. But there is no equivalent for when you're not thirsty anymore. So in regular periods, um, there is people trying to come up with a word to use to describe that situation. And it's coming back, I would say, every few years that you hear somebody making suggestions. And they always struggle with the fact that the words they suggest are longer and they never get accepted or they never find acceptance within the speakers of the language. So there might be a relationship there. Okay, we've got another question from Igor. Is there swearing in every language? or And, and if so, is there also a... Um, grade of which language is the sweariest he thinks irish might be a candidate but um yeah yeah that's a very difficult question to answer um so the problem is like i said there are seven thousand languages so I'm, i i can tell you that every language i know of has swearing in it but it doesn't mean that it's not possible to find some language out there that doesn't have swear words but in general that seems to be something that people do it is true that it's actually quite different across languages um, in terms of how permissible it is to swear so there are places mm -hmm. that you're going to be censored in many places like you're not going to have swear words on tv in other countries you will there are places where you really shouldn't swear at work. There are countries and cultures where it's completely fine. So I don't, it's hard to say with so many languages in the world, which one, like, you know, is most permissible for swearing or not. And also there are many ways to look at what is the swearest. Is it the language where people swear the most or is it the language that has more, most different swear words? Like in English, Fuck is used for so many things. So there aren't that many swear words because the same word is used in a lot of ways. It also depends what you call swear, yes, but you are right that there's a lot of variation across the world. Really okay. large variation. Yeah. Related to this, a question from David. 
What is your favorite language for swearing and why? Yeah. Um, so as you can see, I'm not a native speaker of English, as you can tell by my accent. And there is actually a lot of literature that shows that people feel more comfortable swearing in a language that is not a native language, because in their own native language, they feel very emotional. So the swear words just feel stronger and much more um, obscene and offensive compared to the swear words in the second language. So in that sense, I would say that if I swear in English, um, yeah, it's easier for me to swear, and I swear much more in English than I do in Hebrew, but it also feels meaningless. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah, I feel similar, actually. Good. Um, Another question from Nadia. Are there some semantic categories likely to have a stronger sound meaning relationship than others? For example, space, size, body parts, or time expressions? Yeah, so there are the ones that have been studied. So there are definitely the patterns that have been come up again and again and again. So we know that they're particularly strong. Um, and these are things such as the size, which is the reason I gave you that. So the idea that E sounds small and R sounds large is a very robust pattern across the world's languages. Whether or not that's a domain that is more likely to have it, or just it happens because this is what people looked at, Mm -hmm. that's a little harder to say. I would say that actually one study that I'm doing right now tries specifically to look at sound sound symbolism in words related to survival and in words related to social relationships. Because again, I thought that these might be areas where it's going to be very important for us to express the meaning and make it very clear and um, reduce misunderstanding. But yeah, I don't really know. There's not a lot, like, you know, there's just the patterns that have been found. And like I said, size seems to be one of the strongest ones. But I don't know if in general, like just many domains haven't been looked at. Okay. Okay. Um, Sarah is asking a question. What factors contribute to the perception of German as a root language among many people? Or is that just anecdotal? Yeah, um, that's an excellent question, but I don't have a simple answer. So one thing that we actually do know is that um, people often start with stereotypes about people and then they generalize it to the language. So it's often not really the language itself that has certain sounds, but people think they hear like a like a language as being very romantic or rude or melodic, but that actually relates to the stereotypes that they started with about the people and it generalized from them. And you can see that people's perceptions of what languages sound like, therefore also sometimes vary culturally or vary across time as stereotypes change. So it could be related to the fact that I think in general, German people, um, just like Israelis and Dutch people, are considered more blunt. So I don't know if that helps it. It could also be something about the sounds like huh and the vowels that help it even more. But like I said, I think it usually starts more with the stereotypes and then generalizes to the language rather than vice versa. Yeah, and maybe the famous German little stop doesn't help because we, we tend to really finish speaking each word before we start with the next one. So, yeah. Question from Grady Earthling. How much do onomatopoetic sounds like woof or creak differ in different languages? Yeah, I always find it interesting because we hear that words are onomatopoeic. And I feel like often I listen to the word and I'm like, why is it onomatopoeic? Is it onomatopoeic? But I would say so on the one hand, you can find some variation between onomatopoeic words across different languages. So you can see that it's not such 
so clear. But on the other hand, there is at least one study that I know that looked at onomatopoeic chords in Japanese and they let um, non-Japanese speakers guess the meaning. So mm-hmm. if you just get a word out of the blue, you're probably going to find it very difficult to know what it means. But at least if you get the word versus its antonym and ask which of them does this word mean, then people are above chance at guessing the onomatopoeic words in Japanese. So it seems like there is something there, but not enough for the words to be extremely similar across languages. You still need context or at least be known what are the few options to decide between. Okay. It seems there is still a lot of questions to, to look into that just nobody has looked into yet. Quest, another question from Nadia. What would be the pos what could sorry, what could be the possible reason of the sound meaning relationship? Communicative need, environment, something else? Yeah, so there is the question of why there's like what's the source of the sound symbolism and there's why people use sound symbolism. So the sound symbolism itself is thought to really arise out of things that are not about communicative needs or and are not about specific environment, but really something that is shared across all of human experience. So that's, for example, the example that I gave, like we're all going to produce around the world the sounds n the same way, no matter what. So it is a nasal sound. And because we share this physiology, we create these associations. Or no matter where we're going to be in the world, large objects are going to make resonate on different frequencies compared to small ones. So again, we just learned this association from the environment. So the argument for what, where those associations come from, it's really like physical and physiological environment. But in terms of why, whether or not languages would um, exploit those associations in the language, as I showed um, in the case of their large communities, is about communicative needs seem to be. Okay. Okay, Nadia and Igor are playing question ping pong tonight. We've got a question from Igor again. Will we ever be able to create the ultimate synthetic language that will be very easy to learn to a generic human? Or is there enough, uh, are there even enough universal principles? So that's, I have to say, that's a really interesting question. And it's almost very similar to the question I give my students when I teach them language evolution. So um, the idea is that, um, in, so the idea is that, What is so there are things that are going to be easy for everyone because they really rely rely on um, cognitive biases that we all have. But on the other hand, often what would be the best language really depends on what the communicative needs are. So people in different environments need to talk about different things. Um, so for example, um, languages actually define the vocabulary quite a bit. So there are many words that exist in some languages but not others. Um, so for example. Um, If you talk about, um, so English has the word ice and the word snow, and these are completely two different meanings. And there are other languages that have two different words, but there are many languages that actually just have one word that can mean either ice or snow. And those languages tend to be spoken in places where it never snows or hills. So clearly, why would you create a language that has so many words if you're never going to have to actually really try to communicate the difference? So in that case, an easy language for speakers in places where it never snows and hails will not have such words or will have like, you know, very large categories. But if you live in a place where it snows a lot, you're going to have snow as well as like sleet and flurry and like you know multiple types of stuff because this is something you want to communicate so so the idea that what's going to be the easiest or best language actually depends on where you live and therefore what's easy and that's that's true in terms of vocabulary 
that's actually true in terms of sound, some people say, because some sounds are easier to produce in humid climate and some sounds are easier to produce in dry climate. And there's some arguments that you can see different distribution of sounds in different places according to that. So really there are... Yeah, so just really what's good what's good language or easy language are gonna be different in different places in the world. I should say the research about the sound environment relationship is controversial, but I think it has quite a few um convincing um evidence for it. Okay, interesting. We've got a question from Serda. Are swear words commonly associ- associated with verb verbs related to sexual activity across all languages and cultures? Yeah, so there seems to be some very, very common patterns across the world's languages in terms of what is going to be a swear word. And things related to sexual activity is one of them. Things related to religion is another one. Um, things related to excretion from the body is another one. Um, but then there are also variations. So, for example, in Dutch, words for diseases are swear words. So you can say cancer. And that's a swear word. And that's not going to be true in other places. So there are patterns that are really frequent, but then oddities of different languages. Hey, yeah. A question from Garnet. Does swearing and language develop differently in languages that are moderated? For example, French, moderated by the Académie Française. Or are they opposed to those that are not? So the issue with such... um, Institutes that um, prescribe or uh, monitor language is that usually they would actually not deal with swear words, right? So they will definitely not coin swear words. So, for example, they'll be very annoyed if you say words like email and try to find like a non-English word to say email or internet or like, you know, they try to create um, original words in the language, but they're not going to say, oh, don't borrow fuck, let's give you like a native word for that. So in that sense, they just don't monitor swear words as much. Uh, but I would have to say that even in the other things, like those academies, they do have an influence, but often speakers are even stronger than the academies. And, um, you know, if they insist, they're not always accept words suggested by these academies and instead might use other words. Yeah, I can imagine. Hey, Igor is back. Do you think we should make efforts to create language, or is it doing a cromulent job on its own? I guess. So what does it mean to curate the language? I think Do similar you know what... to what we just discussed about how the um, uh, the Académie Française is controlling vocabulary or tries to vo- control vocabulary. Oh, okay. We should so... try to do that in general. So in that case, actually something that is really interesting is that languages keep on, so all languages keep on evolving. So even English now is not English of a few decades ago. It's going to be different in a few decades. So all the languages are in constant change. And the changes are not random in the sense that languages also keep on adapting to the needs of the speakers. So one of the reasons, like I said, that languages in different places are different is because they're actually adapted to what people need to talk about, what is easy to talk about in those areas, how is it easy um, to talk about, or like I mentioned, as languages, um, as the communities get larger, the vocabulary, sorry, the grammar becomes simpler. So we keep on seeing languages really adapt to the need. So in that sense, yeah, if you just let language um, evolve naturally, it will do its job. And usually I think what those kind of academies try to do is more to prevent the influence of 
like foreign influences rather than necessarily make the language more um, adaptive um, to the yeah. community. Yeah, and quite often they also seem to be more interested in preserving a supposed uh, optimum state that they think language was best 77, 1770s, and we should keep it like that. And yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that in general, there's this idea that if you do something different, like there are many things that people might say and are not grammatically incorrect. Um, but in 50 years, they'll become the correct and dominant pattern. And often this was a simplification and it was created because it's actually easier for communication. So I'm not saying that every change is always makes language better, but in general, languages change all the time. That's natural. And many of the adaptations are actually adaptations that make it more fit for use by the community at that time. Yeah. We got a question from Paul, also known as Pictacule. Um, what about the value of alliteration in swearing, such as odds, botkins, and bones, and buckets of blood? A favorite of his secondary school teacher, English hmm. teacher. I actually, yeah, um, I don't know. I feel like um, a lot of, so there are swearing that are really long, um, but a lot of, like, yeah, there are just different cases, right? Like if you're in pain, you shout, well, I don't know, sometimes you shout, just shout really short monosyllabic words, but sometimes you do actually get into a frenzy of these um, long sentences. Um, I guess there could be something about, uh, just because we say that the sounds in swear words are not arbitrary, it could be that there is something satisfying or good about alliteration, but I really don't, I don't know much about alliteration in swearing, I have to say. Yeah, and I think it's actually a case how easy is it to come up with such an alliteration on the spot instead of using something you've heard before and which is kind of a, yeah, it's it may be several words, but it's one entity of swearing that you're basically uttering at that moment in time. Yeah, I guess the question is that there are different phrases. And the question is, are do those phrases alliterate more than you'd expect? But I don't really know that. Yeah, that's a good question. Another question from Igor. He's got a pet theory that every word in every language can mean penis over China. Can you confirm or deny his intuition? <laughs> so it's definitely true that every word in every language can mean anything. Um, that is the point. Usually, um, so I think, so in theory, yes, whether people would understand you is something different, but something that you can actually see in many cases is that often, if you look at different words for, okay, so I'll take the example of Hebrew, just because, um, like I said, I'm a native speaker of Hebrew, so that's quite easy. So we do have, like, you know, the word for um, penis that is like the official doctor medical, like, you know, um, yeah. term for it. Um, but then, like, you know, you can see different words that, um, other, that people actually use in every day, which are not the medical term. And what's something that is really interesting about it is, is that if you actually think about it, it makes no sense. So, and I think the history actually shows it. So um, basically, so for example, right now we have a word, the common word for penis in Hebrew is actually the seventh letter of the alphabet, which makes no sense. Why would you use an alphabet word? It's like I'm going to say like, you know, G. And that means like, you know, um, penis, which makes no sense. But the reason is that People initially chose um, another word, so it started in Yiddish, and they actually chose another word that is just, I don't remember, like tail or something, that was something completely different, and they started using that in order to not 
really say penis. But then because it's so much, it just became the dominant meaning and then it became really offensive. So they started using only the first letter. So, but the point is every word that you use in order to not be even, not make this direct offensive or obscene association of penis can eventually acquire the domi- as like penis of the dominant meaning, which basically means, yeah, you can use any word. And like, you know, if you use it enough, that's going to become like, you know, it's association. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now, I think the next question from Anonymous, you will need to explain something first. Are you aware of a, something called a Sapir-Whorf hypothesis? Yes, I think that what he asked is actually what I think about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Yeah, but so I think... first, let me explain what the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is. Um, it's sometimes called linguistic relativity in case that that's something that people heard. I think most people today, maybe if they're not... Um, if they don't read pop science about language, they might have encountered it in the movie Arrival. Um, the idea of the superior hypothesis is that the language that you speak actually influences the way you think. Okay. So if, for example, so to give you just an, ex- um, okay, to give you actually um, an easy example, because that's one of the um, things that have been studied most when people study the superior hypothesis, is that language is really different in the color words that they have. So some languages actually only have two color terms, something like dark and something like light, and that's it, no other color terms. Other languages have only three color terms, so something like dark, something like light, and something sort of red. And like, you know, so the idea is that there are many languages that don't have as many color terms as English, and there are languages that have even more color terms than English. And the argument is that people who speak a different language are gonna perceive the world in that way. So for example, Many languages don't differentiate blue and green, so they just have one term that encompasses both of them. And then there are studies that try to see, are they as good as distinguishing between blue and green compared to speakers of languages that have both? And there's some evidence that they find it harder to remember the color and distinguish the colors. In contrast, um, some languages like Russian or Greek, for example, don't have a term like blue because for them, blue is actually two different colors that are just as different from each other as blue and green are. So blue makes no sense just because it just conflates to completely different colors. And there are studies that find, for example, that try to look whether um, having those two terms influences how you perceive different shades of blue, um, whether you see them as really different compared to um, English speakers. And again, there's some evidence to support that. So in general, if you ask me whether I believe in it, I do to a degree. I would actually say that the way I got into language is because of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. I was studying completely different discipline. And then a linguist told me about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and I started reading about it and decided this is like, you know, I'm going to move and study, like shift and study language. So I really love the topic. I do think like it's not, no one believes the strong hypothesis such that if your language doesn't have something, you can't think it. Um, but I do believe in weaker versions in the sense that the language that we speak is going to influence how we tend to view the world and tend to process the world and what we're going to attend to and what we're going to remember. So, yes. Okay. I've heard something similar with regards to numbers, that there is, for example, some, some, um, yeah, some, in, um, what's the word? Some groups, um, indigenous people in, in, in Brazil, who basically, they, they might only have numbers for one, two, three, and then there's many. And they don't distinguish higher than that because they don't need it in their daily lives. So that sounds very similar. 
Yes. So actually, um, I really love that example. I think this is one of the best examples for the superior hypothesis that I find the most convincing. So first of all, yes, there are um, groups, um, I'm now um, blanking on the name of the group in the Amazon, um, that they have sort of one-to-and-many. People argue whether it's really one-to-and-many or not. Uh, but the point is, even when you give them um, tasks, that might seem um, like, you know, relatively simple. If you have a count list, they actually struggle with them a little bit. So first of all, I should just explain that all of us, um, even um, infants that are still pre-verbal, um, even apes can do one to four. So this is something that we perceive automatically. Everyone can do one to four. But the problem is numbers like five, six, 15, 320, the argument is that if you don't have a count list or a number system in your language, you can't actually represent them. So they do different tasks, like for example, they knock on something like this, and they knock several number of times, and they say, now you knock the same. So they can do the one, they can do the two, they can do the three at four, like four is where they start like being more wobbly, and then as you go up, they understand that they need to do more, but where any speaker of a language that has count lists will be able to do seven if you do seven and eight if you do eight. They will just be able to do more if you do 10 versus six. But it'll be, maybe the 10 will be eight, maybe it'll be 11. It's not going to be precisely 10. And that's the point. They can yeah. actually represent large exact numbers. Now, you said that maybe this is because they don't need this, um, not to use um, exact numbers, yeah. and that's the reason. And that was one of the hypotheses that was suggested, that maybe it's not really an effect of the language, but just an effect of the culture. But there's actually been a follow-up study for that by other researchers. Okay. So Alicia Spappen, together with others, so they said, okay, Let's look at people who don't have a count list but do need to use numbers. So they looked at something that is called home signers. Now, home signers are deaf people that are born to hearing parents and they were never exposed to a sign language. And because they were never exposed to a sign language, they were actually never exposed to any language because they can't hear. So they can't yep. hear the spoken language. And because no one interacted them with sign language, they just don't have any language. They usually create their own sign system, which is why they call home signs but they're not fully blown languages and other people around them don't fully understand them. So, but these people, they actually live. So she looked, for example, at home signers in Nicaragua. So they live in Nicaragua and as a person who lives in Nicaragua, you have to deal with large exact numbers. You can't go to the grocery store and say, I'm giving you sort of the price. You need to actually pay the exact price. Like, you know, you do need to deal with numbers because mm -hmm. you live in a culture where numbers are really important but they don't know numbers because they never learned a language. And if you never learned a language, like you, you didn't, you, you never received a count system. And what she found is that if you look at them, they perform very similar to the group in the Amazon. So again, they fail, they can do one through four, but above four, they fail. Okay. So they understand approximately, they know that 20 is more than 10, but the 20 might be 25 or 17. They'll just guess a rough number around it in terms of how many objects they're going to give you. So that really shows that even if your culture really needs it and you need to deal with it, if you don't have it in your language, you will not be able to represent it, which I think is one of the strongest examples of the superior wow. hypothesis. That's very interesting. Let's see. Do we have another question? Completely different subject now. And another question from Anonymous. He's just he, she, they are just back from New Zealand and the letter or sound K, K 
seems to be overrepresented in Maori language. They are curious if geography, for example, earthquakes or other things, influence language sounds. So, yes. So that's what I mentioned before. I'd be happy to explain it a little more, but I do know, I have no idea specifically about and whether it relates to earthquakes and whether that's the reason. And I don't know about that. Yeah. But I do know that there is an argument that um, there are differences in terms of what is easy to produce or what is easy to communicate. So to give you just two examples, but like I said, this is controversial um, okay. research that not everyone agrees with, but I do find convincing. So one of them is the idea that um, tones, so tones are like what you can find in Chinese, for example, in Mandarin. So like, you know, ma and ma are going to be two different words. So the tone of your voice matters. So tones are easier to produce in humid climates compared to dry climates. And if you look, where can you find tonal languages? They're all in very humid areas and not in dry areas. So the argument is mm. that you use sounds that are easy to produce. Other research suggests that you use sounds that are better for communicating. So they look at, for example, do you live in a very densely forested area or very open area? So sound travels differently in those different environments. And again, it seems like the distribution of sounds really fits with what would be good to communicate. So don't know about earthquakes, but there are arguments that the languages of the, like the sounds in languages relate to the environment. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. Next question. Oh, that, <laughs> that's a very personal one. Do you have a favorite swear word? Yeah, I must add a lot. Um, I don't know how to answer that. So um, in terms of using words, I'm assuming I'm using actually the most frequent words and they're just because that's what everyone uses. I would say that this research made me, especially in the first stage where we collected swear words from multiple languages, there were a few really, really um, original ones that I found really interesting. And I can tell you that it's the first time that it made me think about um a really weird combination in Hebrew that I think that the only reason it came up is because most people who say don't understand what it means. So it basically takes words from Arabic, but people don't speak Arabic to understand what it means. And the combination that they make is actually, I, I, I hope you said I'm allowed to swear. So um, it basically says, your God's cunt, which makes, no, like it's a really weird combination, I think. So yeah. I found it, like it's the first time that I thought about how this combination makes no sense. And like I said, it only came up because people don't really know, but you do get really interesting combinations from yeah. different languages. The interesting thing is that I just realized, you've picked your the ones that you, you are interested in based on meaning. Were there any ones that would have triggered you just based on sound itself? Yeah, I guess I, I was thinking more about the meaning than the sounds. Yeah, other words that I really like the sound. I don't know. I'm not sure. Huh. But it is a good point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got another question from Sarah. If you have unlimited resources to create a universal language, where would you start? Yes, I think this relates to what I said beforehand. I don't yeah. think we want a universal language because I think that in different areas, different languages would be better. Just like I said a second ago, right? You wouldn't want to create a tonal language if you live in a dry area. And you, like, you know, you wouldn't want to create a, like, you know, a language that has multiple words about things you'll never talk about, whereas in other places they would need a word. So, um, yeah, I think that in general, languages do a pretty good job at adapting to what we need. So I'll just... Yeah, based on what you said before, it would always be have too many features for some speakers and not enough for others. 
Uh, yeah. that, that would be a problem. Okay, um, we've got one last question from Anonymous. Um, if we want to read more about your research, where should we go? Yes, I have a web page and I think it will be shared and I have links to all my papers on there. So I invite okay. everyone to go and read, they're all freely accessible. As far as I'm aware, our moderators are actually sharing the address in our Twitch chat. And we will also add it to the description for this talk on our website so people can go back there and look it up later on. I think that's been it. That Those are all the questions we had. Thank you very much. That was a very interesting Q&A, and I loved the talk before that. So thanks for that. And the last thing, as always, I just say, stay safe, stay healthy, stay skeptical. See you next time. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more skeptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.